Good evening, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Podcast in the lovely inland Pacific Northwest of the United States of America. Today is appropriately the 16th of December, 2019, and I'm going to be doing a series of 30-minute lectures on T-lymphocyte-mediated autoimmune disease. And so we're going to look at a lot of different papers that have been published in the referee journals. And we're going to get started right now with just a recap of what we're talking about when we talk about T-lymphocytes. Now, there's a lot of different types of T-lymphocytes. We're going to get back into that entire subclassification soon. But I want to uh, reach out and just get a generalization of what I mean by T-lymphocytes relative to the physiology and then we'll do a lot of biochemistry and molecular genetics. So T-lymphocytes are immunopromiscuous, potent, acquired immune cells. That is, they are part of the acquired immune response. They do not necessarily follow limiting or even terminal lineages in terms of terminal differentiation. And so they're not necessarily internally canonically differentiated. Regulation and the subclass alterations are therefore not vectorially determined by even the specific ratios of effector molecules like cytokines and chemokines, or say MHC1, that is HLA1 or HLA2, uh, antigen-bound, antigen-presenting cells. In other words, T-lymphocytes can differentiate into multiple subclasses. And even those subclasses can apparently differ, de-differentiate and differentiate into yet other pathways. So there's a lot of crosstalk amongst the T cells relative to their molecular environment. So we have Th1, 2, and 17 cells. Those are named after the cytokines that they produce most maximally. There's also T-regulatory cells. There are cytotoxic T lymphocytes, or CTLs, and there are natural killer T cells, or NKTs. There's also innate lymphoid cells, ILCs, and there's also follicular lymphoid cells, which are produced particularly in the follicular regions of the body. They are all, all of these T cells are pseudo-stochastically differentiated. By that, I mean apparently randomly, but not randomly. And they're activated after this or during their differentiation, and they are stabilized by both an epigenetic signature process, which can be on again, off again, can be plastic or elastic, and a lot of mediation by bioenergetics. What carbon source are they using to produce ATP? That's what I mean by bioenergetics in the, in the general sense. <clears throat> they actually do all tend to target specific foreign antigens, and that, therefore that's why they're acquired immune response. And they interact with B cells and the T8 cells, the T helper cells got that name because they help the B cell, once an antigen is presented on the surface of the B cell, to... Um, endogenously incorporate that antigen and then start manufacturing 
secreted Frank immunoglobulins after interacting with a T cell lineage. Okay, a T helper cell in particular that's going to have uh, HLA class two binding sites so that it can bind to HLA bound to an antigen bound to, for example, a B cell, activating it and turning it into uh, immunoglobulin producing plasma cells that, subsequent to that. Okay, so there's a lot of different things going on here. So that, but they do target specific foreign antigens and they are regulated by distinct transcription factors that are, of course, endogenous to the T lymphocyte subclass. <clears throat> Cytokines, chemokines, growth factors, and in, and in fact, also lipids. So there's a great deal of molecular interaction that helps trigger, control, and activate and then mediate subsequent destruction or quiescence of T cells. Okay, There's a lot at stake here because they're very potent. Now, we're going to start looking again at a paper from Clinical and Experimental Rheumatology, and it's called the One Year in Review, and it's a discussion of an autoimmune disease called cystic lupus erythematosus. First author's name is Zucci. So, so SLE, systemic lupus erythematosus, is a chronic autoimmune systemic disease. It has extremely varied clinical manifestations and therefore a very complex pathogenesis. <clears throat> In this paper that I'm going to be reviewing off and on through these series of lectures on authentic biochemistry, the authors used a Medline search of only English-containing, English-language-containing articles published between uh, January 1st to the 31st of December in 2018. So basically, this is one year removed. They use various search terms, of course, uh, SLE. They use terms like pathogenesis, biomarkers, clinical manifestations, comorbidities, therapies, those kinds of search terms. They looked at um, hundreds and hundreds of articles, and they ended up uh, 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 finally reviewing about 40 or 50 of them. There's evidence, they say, in this review that supports a strong association between SLE, that's lupus, and complement protein called C1Q deficiency. Now, C1Q complement, of course, is related to the acquired immune response as associated with antigen bound to those proteins, those complement proteins, as associated with B cells, okay? So a deficiency in C1Q, a complement protein, tends to have an evidence associated with SLE. In fact, one of the recent studies they looked at highlighted the role of C1Q in suppressing the activation and expansion of a CD8 plus T cell lineage in an SLE model. And that revealed a new function for that molecule, uh, what molecule we talked about, C1Q, in its addition to its role in complement activa activation. And we'll get into that. So C1Q restrained the response to self-antigens by modulating the mitochondrial metabolism of CD8 plus T cells. And its deficiency triggered an exuberant deficiency in C1Q, CD8 plus T cell response to chronic viral infection. And there were a lot of implications in this paper that suggested a perpetuation subsequent to, distal to that response of autoimmunity. 
So autoreactive B and T cells clearly do play a pathological role in autoimmunity and also in lupus. B cells, of course, are generated with the help of a distinct subset of CD4 T cells. Those are called T follicular helper or TFH cells. And that's always in, within a specialized microenvironment in lymph glands and lymph nodes called the germinal center. There's a recent report that a protein called galactin-3, a lot more about that soon, in the germinal center development process is indeed a process which is controlled and con which, is, which regulates crosstalk between B and T cell populations and which seems to be reporting to galactin-3 expression in this way. The absence of galactin-3 in a mouse model caused an excess of interferon gamma, which in turn raised an aberrant June germinal center formation and ultimately an autoantibody production causing an autoimmune disease. Okay. And that all happens with galactin-3. Okay. And that's when galactin-3 is deficient. Galactin-3 goes down, interferon gamma goes up, germinal center forms a new interaction between B and T cells that ultimately leads to an autoantibody production. So what is galactin-3? Now, this comes from a paper published in Progress in Lipid Research, Volume 76, published in October of 2019, so just a month and a half ago. What does this paper tell us about galactin-3? Active tumors can evade the immune system by instantiating immunosuppression. And they do it with lots of different mechanisms, including the expression and function of that particular glycoprotein, galactin-3. So both tumor and non-tumor cells will secrete GAL-3 into the extracellular compartment via the ER Golgi secretory pathway. That's where protein is synthesized and secreted after glycosylation, right? So the secreted GAL3 then binds to an extracellular matrix and subsequently to the surface of circulating T lymphocytes. Elevated GAL3 in tumors correlates with apoptosis and inflammation, but also causes a reduced number of tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. Okay, those are called TILs. And with that, an impaired T cell activation uh, because of the impairment of their effector function. Indeed, removal of GAL3 or blocking cell interactions with GAL3 can restore T cell effector function and tumor ablation. Yeah. So while GAL3 levels are not predictive of immunosuppression, its regulation uh, and the process therein may be clinically uh, useful to examine. So galactin-3 then influences T cells, and T cells go on to, uh, because of this influence, become anergic, become suppressed, can have impairment of signaling, can uh, commit suicide via T cell apoptosis. These T cells can block cytokine production and function, and these galactin-3 influenced T cells can also regulate their own proliferation. So galactin-3 acts as a transcription factor, or at least a co-factor in the transcription process. 
So what are other biological characteristics in the experimental use of GAL3? Well, GAL3 is nominally involved in cell-cell interactions, cell matrix adhesion, endocytosis, intracellular trafficking, and signal transduction cascades. So it's all over the map in terms of cell-cell interaction. Quale and quanta contextual expression of GAL3 inform cellular functionality and valence. So serum GAL3 concentrations are upper picomolar, but experimental models use several higher relative tissue uh, concentrations. The galactin family in these studies uh, will bind to beta-galactosides through their conserved carbohydrate recognition domain, or so-called CRD. There are a lot of different structural forms of galactin. There's a dimeric form with two identical CRDs. There's a tannin form with two uh, unique CRDs. And there's the chimeric form with one CRD attached to a non-lectin polypeptide domain of GAL3. Galactins interact with other proteins via their lectin domains and direct protein-protein structural determinants, thus enabling multivalent interactions with carbohydrate ligands, leading ultimately to a ligamerization of the polypeptide. GAL3 contains a single CRD, okay, only one copy of that, one structural copy of that per protein, it also has, though, a non-lectin N-terminal domain. So it has a CRD, okay, which is the conserved carbohydrate recognition domain. And it also has an NTD, which is a non-lectin N-terminal domain. That non-terminal, uh, that N-terminal, excuse me, domain enables it to engage in both lectin-carbohydrate and, in fact, far-flung protein-protein interactions of proteins. So the GAL3 monomer, uh, it binds to various carbohydrates. It has a high affinity for branched carbohydrates with a lot of gluconac, that is N-acetylglucosamine. Also, um, with, it has low GAL3 binding when the carbohydrate structure is linear. So it looks like the, it's higher with a branched carbohydrate structure, which is obviously more evolved. Um, GAL3 binding also is mediated by MGAT5 expression. High-level expression of that protein, a lot of interaction, low, relatively low uh, interaction compared to the uh, high, but still very low compared to what might be considered Protein glycosylation, there's a great deal of it uh, on the high GAL3 binding systems, relatively low protein glycosylation in the uh, low interactive phase. Glycoprotein density is a lot more glycoproteins on the surface of the plasma membrane when you're dealing with uh, GAL3 binding. And, and then anything future from that, subsequent to that, you get low uh, glycogen protein, glycoprotein density. Then you have glycolipid density. So glycolipid density also kicks up when um, galactin-3 is involved. So the galactin-3 monomer consists of a CRD, it's a carbohydrate recognition domain, and that NTD, okay, uh, that's the N-terminal uh, differentiation product. 
And there are variables that influence the GAL3 binding to the carbohydrates that we just mentioned. And that's subsequent to a clustering formation of the GAL3 uh, as it binds with higher affinity. And so that's usually when there are more ligands present. That is more carbohydrate, obviously. Higher glycoprotein density, higher lipid density, and where glycosylated proteins are contained within lipid rafts. So this MGAT protein, I want to get back on in a second here, because high expression of MGAT will lead to high GAL3 binding to these proteins. So MGAT5 catalyzes the addition of N-acetylglucosamine and a beta-1,6 linkage to the alpha-linked mannose of a bientenarial N-linked oligosaccharide. What that does is catalyze the last step in the biosynthesis of branched-chain uh, N-glycans, such as those found in the EGTR and EGFR, epidermal growth factor. Um, then TGFR, also another receptor response to TGFR, TGF beta receptor, of course, and a CDH2 uh, receptors. And so, so because of all those interactions, obviously it plays GAL3, via MGAT, obviously plays a key role in the activation of cellular signaling. So a paper published in Nature uh, Review, Gastroenterology and Hepatology in 2019, uh, in December this month, talks about something called primary biliary cholangitis, or PBC. And primary biliary cholangitis is inflammatory and cholestatic. The PBCs, the the primary biliary cholangitis patients uh, and the occurrence of that in the patient population, as well as progression etiology, obviously involve a genetic and immunogenetics environmental uh, interaction. And that environmental interaction becomes a diet-event ontological paradigmatic interaction because it involves nuclear reception and therefore transcription factor mediate alterations in gene expression. Clinical manifestations of bile acid-induced inflammation and fibrosis, in fact, paradigmatic. The management of the patient's system, particularly pruritus, is a notable goal reflected in the development of rational therapy with, with sodium-dependent bile acid transporters. So what about these PPCs? In a paper published in uh, Frontiers in Immunology 2019, uh, way back in June, which doesn't seem that long ago, but is now going on six months ago, PBC associated immune responses involved GAL3 in the PBC pathogenesis. Okay, so we're going deeper into primary biliary cholangitis, okay, and we're trying to figure out what causes it. And I'm telling you from this paper in 2019 of Frontiers in Immunology, um, June 7th publication date, paper uh, page 1309 and ongoing, that cholangitis is associated with immune responses and it involves GAL3 in the pathogenesis. Autoimmune cholangitis can be induced in mice by injections of N-aromaticorvans. And when you do that with these mice, the liver infiltrates of N-aromaticorvans Sivorans infected mice had indeed elevated pro-inflammatory macrophages and dendritic cells, natural killer, natural killer T lymphocytes, and T cells. Okay. GAL3 deletion 
and treatment with GAL3 inhibitor reduced the inflammatory mononuclear cell infiltrate, expression of NLRP inflammasome in the liver infiltrates, and interleukin-1 beta production in the livers of this N aromaticivorans infected mice. The data from this paper it will highlight, does highlight, the importance of GAL3 in production and inflammation in N aromatic kivorans induced PBC by enhancing the activation of another protein called NLRP3 and thus on its way to the inflammasome. And that obviously is going to be, play a role farther downstream, right? That inflammasome, as regulated by the activation of NLRP, is going to be involved in the production of interleukin beta. And it may indicate that GAL3 is indeed responsible for the therapeutical target in immune cholangitis. Glectin 3 also appears to be involved in inflammatory response in the gut to commensal organisms, leading to PBC. The NLR proteins I've mentioned start to regulate the immune response to injury toxins and invasion by microbes where they engage components, of course, of the immune system. The NLR protein cryopyrin recognizes bacterial particles and chemicals such as adhesions um, directly from uh, compounds released by injured cells. Okay. Once activated, groups of cryporin molecules um, assemble themselves along with other proteins in the structures called um, inflammasomes, which themselves are involved in the process of inflammation. Inflammation occurs when the immune system sends signaling molecules as well as, of course, uh, leukocytes to a site of injury or disease and all of that inflammatory response and the signaling and trafficking of these cells is, is launched to fight microbial invaders. And of course, that means to facilitate ultimately tissue repair. Now, a paper published in American Journal of Gastroenterology way back in 2004, so this is 15 years ago, talked about an organism called Novo Schwingobiome aromatosivorans, okay, heard that before. And that's actually a potent initiator of primary biliary cirrhosis. So again, primary biliary cirrhosis characterized by T-cell mediated destruction of the bile duct epithelial cells that line the small intrahepatic bile duct. The host targets of the activated T-lymphocytes are indeed dihydrolipoamide acetyltransferase components of the two oxoacid dehydrogenase enzymes, like pyruvate dehydrogenase. All right, that's when that, the discovery of that pays off. Merging data about this cirrhosis system suggests that there is a microorganism that may initiate the onset of PBC, Novoschwingobium aromatosivorans, is, a, of course, a gram-negative, strictly aerobic bacteria, and that is found worldwide in soil, water, and coastal plain sediments. Its PDCE2-like proteins have a higher degree of homology with immunodominant regions of human um, cells than any other microorganism. N. aromatosivorans therefore can subvert self-tolerance in two ways. 
biomolecular mimicry due to subclinical infection, and of course, by the metabolism of xenobiotics that are present in the microenvironment near the site of inflammation. In an initial study, reported here in the American Journal of Gastroenterology, the investigators found that antibodies against N aromatosivorans were found in 77 of 77 PBC patients from uh, a study done in Milan, Italy. Who, they all had antibodies to PDCE2, and the titers to aromatic sivorans proteins were similar to those to the human PDCE2. That's, again, the enzyme pyruvate dehydrogenase. Paper published in Infectious Immunology seems to support this. This is a paper from 2013. Um, citation is uh, 81, and the pages are 4478 to 4489 inclusive. And this paper in Infection Immunity, published in 2013, says, Staph aureus is associated with skin and soft tissue infections. We already know that. Severity of which can range from minor conditions like folliculitis or cellulitis and in pedigo to a far more severe surgical site infection, which we've seen, which are called, of course, SSIs. S. aureus is linked to many nosocomial hospital-associated uh, SSIs, sometimes leading to bacteremia, endocarditis, and atherogenetic reprogramming, autoimmune inflammatory response. So it's not uncommon to see these functioning in, in uh, your patients. So finally, treatment of SSIs, remember those are severe surgical site infections, led to antibiotic resistance among hospital strains of S. aureus, go figure, by yielding a high prevalence interaction and therefore infection in surgical patients and the concomitant release of Okay, so that says a lot about what's going on with um, these various processes and how they can crosstalk in autoimmunity. So let me just finish this off a little bit. Interleukin 17A, that's a cytokine, proliferative cytokine made by TH17 cells, is basically a prototype of a family of cytokines produced by those cells. Um, they're important, TH17 cells are important in antimicrobial immunity, particularly during fungal and uh, extracellular bacterial infection because that cytokine they produce has an ability to activate CXC, chemokine production, and can consequently it can direct the recruitment of neutrophils to the site of infection, one of the jobs interleukin-17 does. Mice deficient in leukin-17 are highly susceptible to a number of infections, including bacterial and fungal, and that includes bacteria like Klebsiella pneumoniae and E. coli, as well as the fungus uh, Candida albicans. In the context of SRIS infections, IL-17 is believed to play a significant role, supported by clinical findings that hyper-IgE syndrome patients who have impaired TH17 cell responses suffer from recurrent SRIS ectopic infection. That patients with atopic dermatitis have increased susceptibility to colonization by SRIS, and that's been ascribed to decreased IL-17. So IL-17 uh, and may affect the synthesis of anti-S aureus vaccines or more direct immunotherapy, okay? The importance of innate sources of IL-17, such as the gamma delta T cells we've talked about, and <laughs> invariant natural killer T cells, or INKTs, 
and lymphoid tissue inducer-like cells appear to predominate actually in the skin and mucosa. So that leads us back to this Frontiers in Immunology 2019 paper. Recall, and let me make sure that you recall by repeating this, pharmacological inhibition of GAL3 with a compound called Davinat attenuates autoimmune cholangitis. It suppresses serum levels of pyruvate dehydrogenase E2 IgA. It also seems to GAL3 work on suppressing, suppressing AST and ALT, so two enzymes which are often found associated with liver disease. And that's all linked to the expression of an inflammasome called NLRP3. And look at one beta production and influx of T1, T2, and T17 cells in the liver, and ultimately also a reduced reduction in liver fibrosis, which is really important. You're not going to get a continuation of this system until you get liver fibrosis knocked out. So we're going to stop there. We're going to pick this up and finish a couple more slides next time. This is Dr. Daniel J. Guerra saying uh, bye for now. <laughs>